You're listening to a sermon from LifeGate Church of Seguin, Texas. This sermon was preached by Joshua Jordan, who serves as the lead pastor at LifeGate Church. Find out more about us at www.lifegateseguin.com. If you have a Bible with you, if you will make your way to the letter of Galatians. If you don't have a Bible, you forgot it, or you just don't have one, that back table right back there, before you get to the double doors, there are some Bibles back there. I would encourage you to have a Bible in front of you. This morning, we're in Galatians chapter 6. We're going to be looking at verses 6 through 10. So I want to give everybody a moment to get there before we read God's holy inspired, and authoritative word. Galatians chapter 6, beginning in verse 6. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone especially to those who are of the household of faith. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your word of all the gifts you give us, and you have given us so many gifts that we don't deserve, but we desperately need. And one of those gifts is you've given us your very word, your revelation to us. What a gift it is. So, Lord, may we now receive it with gratitude. May we have a sense of expectancy that right now you are going to address us. Give us ears to hear, hearts that receive, minds that comprehend all that you have for us today. And may we leave here today transformed by what we've heard. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, on February 27th of this year, we heard the very first message in this series, Freedom in Christ, the glorious gospel of Galatians. Can you believe that? Last Sunday of February is when we began this series through Galatians, which means that the primary preaching diet for this church since then has been the letter of Galatians. And I've been so encouraged over the last few months just to hear from a number of folks good reports about how God has met you, has encouraged you, has spoken to you through this series in Galatians. And Lord willing, over the next few weeks, if you are looking, you realize we're coming to the end of Galatians. Over the next few weeks, we're going to finish up this preaching series. And as we do, I, I thought it would be fruitful and beneficial to us all, not just to finish this series and say, okay, what's next? I thought it would be fruitful that we stop and we reflect on the following question. Because I think it would be a shame, and, and, and well, more than a shame, I think it would be unwise of us just to hear all of this that we've heard and then just move on. I think we need to ask this question. In what way should I think differently and live differently in light of what God has revealed to us through this letter? See, that's why God gave us this letter. It wasn't just to inform us. It wasn't just to speak to us each Sunday so that we would get kind of a pick-me-up so we could head back into our week. God inspired this letter, has preserved this letter 
And we've had the privilege of hearing him address us through this letter, not only for each Sunday, but so that this letter could transform us. But the question for us all is how should we think differently and live differently in light of what God has revealed to us through this letter? Today, I want to reflect on that question from a personal point of view. I want each one of us to think personally, how would I answer that question? And then next week, Lord willing, I want to ask the same question, but I want us to think about it corporately. So today, how should we think differently and live differently individually? And next week, what does this mean for our church? After looking at this this letter to this church, what bearing should it have on us as a church? How, How should we think How should we respond differently? Are there things God's calling us to in light of our time in this letter? But this morning, the text before us is Galatians 6, verses 6 through 10. And it informs us that all who believe in the good news of the gospel, all who've been reconciled to God the Father, all who are living according to the Spirit of God, we should do the following two things. So there may be many points of application that we need to reflect on. How is God going to, is calling us to live differently, think differently? But here are two things, as Paul closes out this letter, we are called to do. And it's going to be up here on the screen. Here's our outline. We're called to sow to the Spirit by sharing what is good, verses 6 through 8. And the second thing we're called to do is to keep doing good while waiting for the harvest, verses 9 through 10. So There are many points of application that we can take away from this letter. But Paul provides two things we must do in light of all that he has said. And one of those things is sow to the Spirit by sharing what is good. Now before we look at verse 6 again, Let me just first draw our attention. We can kind of go 30,000 feet and look at this passage, verses 6 through 10. As you just saw, we're breaking it up into two sections, verses 6 through 8, 9 through 10. And in both of these sections, there are two themes that are present in both, and those two themes are working together to connect both sections. For example... In verse 6, we're told to share all good things. Do you see that? And then look again in verses 9 through 10. We're told what? In verse 9, do good. Don't grow weary in doing good. Then in verse 10, we're told to do good to all, especially those in the household of faith. So there's one theme. We're called to do good. In both sections, that is something we're called to do. And in both sections, look at verses 7 and 8. We're told that sharing all good things is equated with sowing to the Spirit. So this theme of sowing and reaping appears in verses 7 and 8. And then in verse 9, when we're told don't grow weary in doing good, why should we not grow weary in doing good? Because eventually we will reap a harvest. So in both of these sections, there is this theme of doing good and sowing and reaping. Now with that scene and, and kind of before us, let's go back to verse 6. Let me read it again and let's start thinking through what, what's being stated here. Verse 6 says, let the one who is taught the word of God share all good things with the one who teaches. Notice in this verse, there are two groups being spoken of. The taught and the teachers. Do you see that? There's the taught and the teachers. And this word that Paul uses in the original Greek for, for taught is the same word he uses for teachers, and it's a very important word for us to catch on to. It's not the normal word that Paul uses throughout his letters to speak of teaching. In the Greek, it's a word that if you heard it, you see where we get our word catechism and catechesis from. It means to instruct doctrinally. That's what a catechism is. Maybe you grew up in a church 
in a church context where there was catechisms, maybe that's foreign to you, but a catechism is basically that, it's doctrinal instruction. Where do we get that word catechism from? From this Greek word. It means to instruct doctrinally. And pay careful attention to what Paul says that those who are taught, who are instructed in doctrine, what are they called to do? Notice in verse 6, they're called to do something. They're to share all good things with those who taught them. Now, what are good things? Paul kind of just uses this broad term. What does all good things mean? Well, in this context, it refers to giving the teacher what would bless them and what would help them. So it's, he's using it in a broad way, but basically saying be a blessing and help those who have helped you. Now, most likely what Paul means here when he refers to sharing all good things in this passage is he is most likely speaking about taking care of the teacher's material needs. Now, why why do I think that's what Paul is talking about here? Because as we go to other of his letters, we see very similar language. And the language he uses is always in the context of provision of material needs. For example, in Philippians chapter 4, verse 15, when Paul's thanking the church in Philippians for partnering with him and meeting his needs, listen to what he says. And you Philippians yourselves... Know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Now, why is that significant and how does it connect to this passage? Because he's thanking them for giving and, and this, this back and forth of giving and receiving. And he uses this word partnership, the word for share here in verse six is the exact same word, koinonia, fellowship partnership. There's been this partnership. He thanks the Philippians. Thank you for seeing the need that I had to do the work of ministry and that you partnered with me to make sure I could do that. We see another example. We won't take time to read it this morning, but in 2 Thessalonians verse 3, or chapter 3, verses 11 through 13, Paul uses this expression again that he just used here in Galatians. He tells them, don't grow weary in doing good. And the context of that is Paul has just called them to take care of one another. But he says, there are some among you who are lazy and you are not to take care of them. They need to go to work. But then he says, but don't grow weary in doing good. So here we see this phrase in the context of Paul talking about meeting material needs. Now, that, this raises the question. Why is Paul making this point at, at this section of the letter? He just throws in this little line here at the end of this letter. Why, why would he be doing that? Well, remember, friends, this letter, the letter of Galatian, is most likely the earliest letter of the entire New Testament. See, we often think because... Matthew comes first and the Gospels comes first. That means they were the first ones written. No, Galatians was probably the first of all of the New Testament. It's early 440 ADs is when it was most likely written. So that means right now, as Paul's writing, the church is in its infancy. They had the Old Testament scriptures and that's it. There is no paradigm. There is no way to, to talk about doing ministry. They're, they're kind of branching out on their own. They're no longer in the synagogues. They're no longer under priests. They're no longer... So Paul's having to instruct them on, on what to do, giving them practical instruction about caring for the teachers who taught them doctrine. Now, what's the main point of verse 6? What should we take away from verse 6. Well, the main point is not pay the pastor. A major point of emphasis is the relationship between the teacher and those being taught. There's a relationship between the teacher and those being taught. Notice that word share again. It's that same word for partnership, fellowship. The point that Paul is making is that both parties, the teacher and the taught, have something to give each other and both have something to receive. 
And in this situation, in this context, those who have been taught, they have a spiritual need. And Paul's drawing attention to their spiritual need. You have a spiritual need. What is that need? You need to hear God's word. You need it. Like you need to eat food each day. You need the word of God if if you are going to be spiritually healthy. That's the need you have. So the question is, if you have a need like that, how does that need get met? Remember, there's not Bibles floating around everywhere. There's not the internet. And there's not even a New Testament at this time. You have the Old Testament scriptures and you're hearing about this Jesus who fulfilled the Old Testament. How in the world does this need to understand the Bible and how it points to Jesus? How does this need get met? By sitting under the faithful teaching of God's word. You have a need. And this need is being met by sitting under the faithful teaching of God's word. Which then asks, leads us to ask this question. Practically speaking... How does a person, how do they faithfully teach God's word? If someone's called to teach God's word, and in this context to instruct in doctrine, how do they do that? Don't don't miss the most obvious and practical thing Paul's saying, and it has implications for us here in a second. So hang on. Here's what it requires at its most basic level. If we're to sit under the faithful teaching and instruction of God's word, Those who teach us, it requires time and effort. If we're going to be faithful teachers and we want to sit under faithful teaching, it requires time and effort. That means somebody doesn't just throw something together last minute, think of a a funny story and kind of come and present it. It takes time. Time to study. Time to pray. Time to reflect. Time to think about, okay, how do I communicate this? Which is the best way to say these things? Who is the audience that I'm speaking to? What objections could they have? What things do I need to clarify? That takes time. And you know what? If you're doing that and that takes time, you know what you're doing? You're forsaking other responsibilities that you have. Responsibilities that might mean providing for your material needs. And that's the point that Paul is drawing attention to. In this instance... Paul was informing these Galatians, these Galatian Christians, you need to center the faithful teaching of God's word. One of their problems, if you remember, as we made our way through this letter, is they're beginning to listen to people who are saying the wrong thing. And Paul's not always going to be there. And so he's saying, listen, you don't want to keep going off the, ro- the, the, the rails again and getting on the wrong track. People telling you this is what the Bible really says when it's not. Then you need faithful teachers. You need faithful teachers, but they cannot teach you if if they can't afford to do so because their daily needs are not met. Now, what's the main point then of verse 6? The main point, if you really stop and reflect on this verse, and then we're going to see how it fits in with the bigger picture here, verses 7 and 8. The point is, you and I must invest in our spiritual needs, like the need to be fed the word of God. We are called to invest in our spiritual needs. See, the point of verse 6 is simple. Invest in spiritual things, not just material things. Do you see that you kind of stand back and you look at verse 6 a little bit more? It's not just a practical Kind of thing that we just need to put aside think, well, that was just for the Galatians. He's just kind of letting them know what they're to do. What he's saying is you have a need. Are you investing in that spiritual need in the same way you're investing in material needs? And we know that that's the case because of what Paul says next in verses 7 and 8. So we want to connect verse 6 with verses 7 and 8 and a bigger picture forms. Look at verse 7 with me. After Paul gives this very practical instruction, he then turns around and he says, do not be deceived. In other words, don't live like this is not true. He's about to say something to them that they obviously are acting like it's not, it's not the case. They're acting like, well, that, 
that, that's not the way the world works. That's not the way God operates. So he's saying, don't be deceived. And then he says, God is not mocked. His ways cannot be ignored. There is a truth that, that, that Paul is wanting to get across that obviously these that he's writing to in this letter are, are just acting oblivious to. Maybe they're uninformed. Most likely they're not uninformed. They're just living opposite of what they know to be true. What is this truth that he's saying, hey, don't be deceived. God is not mocked. Well, what is it, Paul? The rest of verse 7. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. Paul's saying, listen, church of Galatia, you're, you're forgetting the most basic principle and proverb. It's true of all of life, but it's also flowing out of the Old Testament scriptures. You reap what you sow. You've heard that before. You reap what you sow. Well, Paul's saying to these Galatians, you're not living like that's true. You may say it's true, but you're not living like it's true. Now, what does that mean, a man reaps what he sows? Well, friends, whether you are a skilled, experienced farmer, or you're on the opposite extreme, and you're one of these people that can't even keep a house plant alive, we all get what it means that we reap what we sow. Right, we, we all understand the principle of sowing and reaping. Whether you're younger or older, we all understand this basic principle that what you plant is what you get, right? We, we, we don't, any, anyone in here, no matter what your experience with gardening and farming is, no matter whether you're younger or older, you know that if you go and you plant an apple seed in the ground, you should not be surprised when an orange tree doesn't grow. Well, you don't have pineapples. It's an apple seed. You plant an apple seed, you should expect an apple tree. We, we, we should get that. We all do get that. What you plant, you get. Well, let's go one step further. It's not just what you plant, you get. But let's say I have this huge section of land, acres and acres of land, but just right over here, I plant a little bit of wheat. I should not walk out during the harvest time and say, where's all my wheat? I only planted a little bit. I'm getting what I planted, not just in the kind of what I planted I'm getting, but I planted a little. I shouldn't expect a lot. See, we understand that principle of sowing and reaping. And what Paul is doing here is he's saying that principle is not just true in, in most of life. It's true for spiritual life as well. And we often don't live like that's true. And so then Paul explains how he's using this principle of sowing and reaping to draw attention to our spiritual life in verse 8. Look at verse 8 again. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Think about those two things. They're in contrast and they're almost identical in language except what's being sowed and what's being reaped. So Paul begins by saying, if you sow to the flesh, you will reap from the flesh. If you plant an apple seed, you're going to get an apple tree. If you sow to the flesh, you should not be surprised when you reap from the flesh. And all the flesh can produce at the end of the day, no matter how, how good of a life you live, the only thing that the natural man can produce at the end of the day, at the end of time, is corruption, is death. And if you compare this with the next sentence, put corruption opposite of eternal life. So this isn't just talking about uh, your, your life ended and it wasn't that bad. I think corruption here means it is talking about eternal consequences. Then he turns around. Well, wait, before we look at then what he says it, we should be sowing, let, let's talk about what does that mean to, to sow into the flesh and then to reap the flesh. Here's what he means. Those who sow in order to meet their needs, their desires, their wants with no regard for their soul 
and for their spiritual state and for the things of God, they will sow, they will reap what they sow. If you're here this morning and your whole life is about you sowing in to your needs, your wants, your desires, you have no desire, you have no inclination or care or wonder about your own soul, your own spiritual state, and, 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 and questions of eternity, listen. What you reap, or what you sow, you will reap. But Paul says there's a better way, the way that he's calling these believers in Galatians to respond. He says that those who sow to the Spirit, meaning those who live according to the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit, those who sow to the Spirit will reap from the Spirit. They will receive from the Spirit, meaning they will receive something they couldn't produce on their own. What is it that they will receive? Eternal life. Well, Paul reminds them of this principle they have forgotten, that a man reaps what he sows, and then he turns around and he brings spiritual implications to it. He says, you're either sowing to the flesh, and you're going to reap according to the flesh. You're sowing to the Spirit, and you're going to reap according to the Spirit. So here's the million-dollar question. What are you sowing to this morning? Are you living your life in light of eternity? Are you making life decisions? Am I making life decisions with eternity in view? I would guess the fact that you're here at church, you vast majority, if not all, here would believe in eternity. But do we live each day? Do we make decisions each day in light of eternity? Is eternity something that just gives us comfort when we think about the death of a loved one or our own mortality, but it doesn't affect the words that come out of our mouth, the way we live, the way we interact with people, the decisions that we make, the jobs we get, the, the money we spend. See, Paul is saying that our life decisions should be, should be made in light of eternity. Here's another question. If you think about the word sowing, we, we, could, we could turn that word into a modern day word of investing. Are you investing in eternity? Are you just storing up material possessions? Is your life primarily about your needs, your wants, what you have, your 401k, your retirement, your house, your this, your that? But, but how many of us are, are investing in eternity? Now, there are many ways we're called to invest in eternity. But one of the primary ways that is spoken of often, including this passage, but it was spoken of a lot by the Lord Jesus himself. One of the chief ways we can invest in eternity is by sharing with others what we have, our material possessions for the sake of the gospel. Listen to what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21. And friends, listen, we must not hear this as a suggestion. It's a commandment. Jesus, with authority, says, do not. It's not a suggestion, it's a commandment. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. How do we know he's primarily speaking about money? Go down to verse 24. No one can serve two masters. For he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And then Jesus says, you cannot serve God and money. So one of the ways 
that we are called to invest our lives into things that are spiritual is by investing with material blessing we've received for the sake of the spiritual, for the sake of the gospel. Now, before we go any further and we get to the second half, let, let me just stop here. I want to push the pause button because I can imagine that maybe some here could hear what I'm saying in the wrong way. And I want to be abundantly clear. It is imperative that you hear what I am saying and not hear what I'm not saying. Friends, I'm not applying that if you want to inherit eternal life, if you want to go to heaven, if you want to be reconciled with God, then you just must do some good deeds. You need to start giving to the church. If you do enough of those, your good deeds will outweigh your bad deeds. That is not what I'm implying, and that's not what this text is saying. Let us be clear. Friends, our one and only hope for salvation is found in Jesus Christ and what he did to pay for our sins on the cross and what he did to deliver us from the slavery of sin and bondage. That is the only way anyone has ever or will ever be made right with God. There, there is only one way we can be right with God. And it's through Jesus Christ. And that's what we've heard time and time again as we've made our way through this letter. We, we've, we've, we've heard this. Paul has confronted this head on because one of the problems in Galatia was that they were being told, okay, yeah, yeah, you, you need Jesus, you need to believe in Jesus, but you also need to do these things to be right with God. And Paul has confronted this again and again and again. Listen, trying to be good enough in order to be right with God will never work. It will never work. We serve a holy God. And if you want to live by the law, then good luck. Keep it perfectly. And then answer this question, what are you going to do about all the times you didn't keep it perfectly? No one here wants to stand before God at the end of life and say, God, could you, could you measure my good deeds versus my bad deeds? I would not encourage you to want to take that wager of, well, I, I, I bet you my good deeds will outweigh my bad deeds. Listen, no matter how hard we try, we will always fail to live up to God's standards if we're trying to be made right with God. Actually, there, there's a word for that. We've heard it all throughout Galatians. This idea that we can do certain things to gain favor with God, that's called legalism. That's one of those ditches we've been trying to avoid this entire time, thinking, oh, okay, all right, so what I need to do to be more right with God is I just need to invest materially. I need to serve more at the church. I need to do these things. Friends, I hope that is not what you've heard this morning. But there's good news. Listen, I, wa I want to make sure we're clear here before we move on. There is good news. Here's the good news. If we are on our own to do what's necessary to be right with God, we're damned. But the good news is that God has done for us in Jesus Christ what we could never do on our own. To redeem us, to reconcile us, and to give us new life. So if you're here this morning, and you have never put your faith in Jesus Christ and repented of your sins. Listen, here's the application for you this morning. Believe the good news. Believe what you just heard. You say, yeah, but that just sounds too good to be true. <laughs> Believe that you can be forgiven, made new, and restored, and you have fellowship with God for all of eternity. All you have to do is believe that God did for you what you could never do on your own by sending Jesus. You receive it. 
and you will be made new and forgiven. If you have done that, you, you have believed in that good news, then here is my encouragement to anyone here, all believers here who have done that. May the gospel motivate us to live for eternity and to invest in eternity. See, the gospel isn't just concerned with how, where we go in eternity. The gospel should motivate us to live for eternity. It should cause us to live every day for what matters and what is ultimate and what is lasting. Now that brings us to the second part of this passage. Keep doing good while waiting for the harvest. Look, look at the beginning of verse 9. After Paul gives this instruction, this practical piece of application in verse 6, and then he gives the reasoning behind it in verses 7 and 8, he then turns around with this admonition, verse 9, and let us not grow weary of doing Good. He tells us do good. Why we should do good? Because what we sow, we will reap. But then he says, hey, listen. Don't grow weary in doing good. And here's the reality. Anyone and everyone who is seeking to sow to the Spirit for the sake of eternity, anyone who is taking this admonition from the Apostle Paul in verse 8 to sow into the Spirit, anyone who takes that seriously is going to find themselves tempted a lot to grow weary and to give up. Why? Why is that? Because listen, sowing to the Spirit doesn't come natural to us. It requires zero effort when you wake up in the morning to be selfish. You don't have to wake up in the morning and say, okay, what are my needs, my desires, what is on my to-do list, who's going to serve me, what went wrong yesterday, what about this thing, what about that thing. That comes natural, as natural as breathing. See, due to the fact that sin and selfishness and the material world appeal to the flesh instead of the things of God, listen, sowing to the Spirit is hard. It requires effort. And it can be very tempting to, to give up and to give in. And, and not only does it require effort, sometimes all that effort doesn't look like it pays off. We live for years sowing to the Spirit. Godly women living years sowing to the Spirit, remaining single, working among a bunch of co-workers who are living in promiscuity and they're all happy and they're talking about what they did over the weekend with their husbands and boyfriends. And they can think, is this worth it? People choosing to go the right path with their money and their business and not cut corners and do what... what what would be pleasing to the Lord. And at every turn, it feels like there's barriers and they hear of another friend who's cutting corner and his business is just flourishing. We can say, is this really, is this really worth it? And listen, sowing to the Spirit instead of the flesh, not only does it not come natural to us, not only does it not immediately bear fruit, it's opposite of the world around us. Every turn, every corner, the world is bombarding us with everything that's opposite of the things of God. It's a fight, as we saw earlier in Galatians. It's a war to remain godly. And the question can be, is this worth it? Brothers, and sisters, living in light of the gospel will make us at times feel like strangers and aliens in this world instead of feeling at home. And don't we all want to feel at home? If we get the gospel, sometimes we are going to feel like strangers and aliens. So what must we do? Paul says, let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season, we will reap if we do not give up. 
So what must we do? We must wait for the harvest. If you are a child of God the Father through the Spirit because of the work of the Son, one day, listen, this is a glorious truth, one day you and I will experience in fullness all the benefits and blessings of being the children of God. There are many benefits and blessings now, but one day we will experience all the benefits, all the blessings of being God's children for all of eternity. We will never exhaust them. We will experience the reward for investing in eternity in ways we cannot even comprehend right now. One day we're going to get to heaven and we're going to say, what? That little thing I did? I get this? So here's the question. And it's a question every person in this room must settle. Here's the question. It's the question of whether you believe waiting for the final harvest is worth. Before you leave today, you must wrestle with that question. Do you believe that the final harvest is worth waiting for? Do you just want to pay off now? Or do you say, oh man, the benefits and blessings of the children of God far outweighs the pleasures of this world. The promises of God are far greater than the pleasures of this world. And I'm going to wait to experience them in full. See, we will not wait if we don't think it's worth it. So the question for each one of us this morning, do you believe it's worth it? Do you believe that being a child of God who keeps in step with the Spirit, who pursues godliness that that kind of life is worth it. Young people, do you believe that following after the things of God, keeping in step with the Spirit, and pursuing godliness is worth it? If you don't, then you won't wait for the harvest. You will grow weary, and you will give up. So what must we do while we wait for the harvest is the final thing here in verse 10. Paul then says, so then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Paul says, as you wait, here's what you're to do. Take every opportunity to do good to everyone. Now, I just want to point out this connection so that we don't miss it. Friends, living for eternity and living as exiles and strangers in this world does not mean that we check out and we live passive in this world. We don't all just go buy some land and live in a monastery. That's not what me waiting means. Paul says, wait. What do we do when we wait? Do good to everyone. See, being heavenly minded doesn't make us of no use on earth. Those who are the most biggest blessing to the world and to their neighbors are those who are heavenly minded. So we're told, use every opportunity we can to do good to others and to care for them. This means, friends, that anyone who's been transformed by the gospel, listen, anyone, who's been transformed by the gospel, must be large-hearted, generous, gracious, compassionate, full of love, and good deeds. Does that describe you and me? Because if our eyes are on eternity, we're not people who are like, well, I don't care about this world. This world is not my home. I don't care about my neighbor. If our eyes are on eternity, we ought to be the most large-hearted, Generous, gracious, compassionate people full of love and good deeds. Don't miss then how Paul finishes 
in verse 10. Even though we're called to do good to all, he says, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Even though we're called to do all, good to all, we must prioritize who we are benevolent to. Here's just a practical hard fact for you. You can't be good to everyone. There's people around you every day. There are starving children in, in, in some African country. You may not be supporting. You may be supporting one group and another group is not being supported. Listen, you can't, you can't do this command, practically speaking, if you just think, I've got to meet every need. It's going to wear you out. It's going to be humanly impossible. There are some priorities. And Paul says, do good to everyone, but make sure you make the people of God your priority. Don't we see that in Acts 2 and Acts 4? If we had more time, we would, we would look at those passages where, where all of a sudden Luke gives us a window into the first congregation as they're meeting. And not only does he tell us that they're praying and that they're seeing miracles and that they're, that they're devoted to the word, he says that they were selling their possessions and giving them to one another. And no one said, this is mine. But all were taking care of one another. That was one of the defining marks of this new covenant community. So what do we take away from this? Investing in the family of faith is essential and important. Listen, taking, investing in the family of faith is as essential as taking care of our own families. Do you have that view of the family of faith? I know we, we love our families. As I look around this room, the, 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 we, we are a family-oriented congregation, and there's nothing you wouldn't do for your family. Well, according to Scripture, if you belong to Jesus Christ, your family just got bigger. Is this family a priority to you as much as your personal family? Is this a priority to you? See, here's the exhortation we close with. I want to encourage us to make the members of this church a priority when it comes to sharing our resources. The, the, the family of faith ought to be a priority to us when sharing our resources. So here, here's, here's a real practical thing to do, but let's, let's, let's get our boots on the ground. We can, we can talk about this, but here's where it, it lands. I want to encourage every person here to prayerfully look at your calendar and your checkbook and consider whether you need to adjust your priorities. Do you give far more time and energy and resources to material things or spiritual things? Do you give far more time of your resources and your energy and, and, your, and your money to meet your family's needs while you neglect the needs of your spiritual family. See, we can't read this passage without really stopping and thinking, I need to evaluate. Is the family of God, is it a priority to me? And, and I can't just say it is. It shows up in things like my checkbook and my calendar. Are we giving time for one another? Are we taking care of one another? Are we investing in things that are spiritual and not just things that are material and for our own good? Listen, church family, the message of the gospel is meant to redirect our priorities and our pursuits. That's what the gospel does. The gospel isn't just a message that says how you get to heaven. The message of the gospel, it redirects our passions, our priorities, and our pursuits. And the letter of Galatians makes a bold claim about how we ought to see ourselves and live. And this is how I want to close. Listen to these words. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. That's the banner over anyone who claims the gospel. My life is not my own.
I still may be in the flesh, but I don't live according to the flesh. And that means that I'm sowing and reaping different things than the world around me. Let's pray now and ask the Lord to write these truths on our heart. Oh, Lord, would you help us now in light of what we've just heard to be able to respond accordingly, to respond appropriately. Oh, Lord, help us right now by the power of the Spirit, I pray that no one would feel you convicting them, calling them, bringing something to mind, and would resist that. Whatever you're bringing to mind, whatever you've just placed on our heart over these last few minutes, oh Lord, may we not get up and just go about our Sunday business. You brought us here to address us, and you have addressed us. Help us now to respond. I pray for every person here. That response may look different. But every one of us must respond. And the enemy of our soul wants us to not respond. Oh Lord, would you, those that you're calling to yourself this morning, would they not resist coming to others and saying, I believe the Lord has been convicting my heart, showing me my sin, showing me my need for the Savior. I heard about that gospel, and it was sweet to my ears and to my soul. May they this morning tap someone on the shoulder, say to someone else, tell me more. For every single one of us, Lord, that you've convicted of where we are investing far more into things that don't matter, that are material and not lasting, Lord, would you help us not leave here, feel convicted, and then just go on? Would you use this message to reshape and redirect our priorities and what we're investing in? Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for speaking to us this morning. Lord, as we close, we want to just lift our eyes to you and give you all the glory because we know we can do none of this apart from you. So, Lord, we, we say in Christ Jesus, we can do these things. So help us, Lord, to do them. In Jesus' name, amen. Church, it feels right and 